Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the Haber Show podcast. This week's guest is the owner of the Washington Wizards, Ted Leonsis. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of the Monumental Sports, which just celebrated a WNBA championship with the Mystics. We'll talk to Ted and get an update on John Wall as he recovers from his Achilles tear, and we'll discuss the uh, BS in the media reporting and get insight into Bradley Beal's extension with the Wizards. We'll also hear why Ted is excited about the Wizards' future in a non-Big 3 era, or that's what he calls it, and then we'll discuss their new in-arena sportsbook. All right, let's get to it. Ted, congratulations on the WNBA championship. It is a great time to be a D.C. sports fan. I want to thank you for joining me this morning. Oh, my pleasure, and um, I couldn't agree more. It's uh, it's a fantastic time to be a Washington, D.C. sports fan. Um, the Capitals, the NHL season is well underway, and I just looked at the standings. We have the second most points in the NHL right now, the Washington Capitals. The window's still open, and we're playing great, and the Wizards opened on the road, and uh, the Nationals went up 2 nothing in the World Series, and a couple of weeks ago, our Washington Mystics won the um, WNBA championship, and it's really a fantastic narrative here. You know, the Caps winning the Stanley Cup, the Mystics winning the championship, the World Series going on right now. It's uh, just a positive, great time to be a fan. You know, the NBA season has has tipped off, and it's been crazy a crazy off season for for the Wizards and for the NBA at large, and we'll get into that. But first, on this show, Ted, we kick things off with a little game to loosen things up, and I want okay. you—I want to let you in on a little story just so you have an idea of where I'm going with this. So last year, Ted, I was in Boston for the MIT Sloan Conference, and I've been going for years, and I just so happened to meet up with my aunt, and she lives in Lowell, Massachusetts. And she had mentioned to me while we're catching up, I hadn't seen her in a long time, and I'm telling her what I'm doing. I'm covering the NBA for uh, for NBC Sports, and, uh, yeah, I'm here for, you know, the sports conference. And she looks at me and she says, hey, Tommy, you know, I grew up with a guy who back in Lowell, I mean, we went to high school together and uh, he's pretty deep into the sports world. And I'm sitting here like, all right, you know, the sports world's pretty big. <laughs> and she's, uh, you know, he, I think he's I think he's pretty deep in, in basketball, too. You might know him, and I'm sitting here, Ted, and I'm just sitting here like, you know, I've played this name game so many times in, in, in my career and and sports world is huge. So I'm like, I'm, I'm just entertaining. I'm just saying, okay, shoot. And she goes, Ted Leonsis. And right, I'm so like, who is your aunt? Tell me who she is. <laughs> so I'm like, wait, Ted Leon, are you kidding me? She's like, Oh, Ted, we go way back. And my aunt is Effie Poulakis. Oh my gosh. That's <laughs> unbelievable. I think we might even be related somewhere back in, in the day. You know, Lowell was, uh, a um a mill town was a place where um where immigrants would come and there was a big infusion of uh Greek immigrants that came to work the mills and uh Effie and her family were there. We um many of us grew up playing basketball um at the Hellenic uh and Holy Trinity Church and the little gyms there and the YMCA and um 
And Effie will remember that my guidance counselor at Lowell, Massachusetts, told my parents that I wasn't college material and I wouldn't amount <laughs> to anything. And um, I'm very fond of um, of my Lowell roots and my Greek Orthodox roots and uh, the Palakis family. They're bedrock in Lowell. So that's absolutely fantastic. What a small world. Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. So I'm great. I'm my name is Tom Haberstro, right? You look at that last name Haberstro and you don't think I'm Greek, but my uh my middle name is Kilakos. Oh and there you go. So well, my, my real name my real name is Theodoros Yanis Leitsakos. That was Leitsakos? Can you spell Leitsakos. that for the listeners? Yep, Leitsakos. It's L-E-U-T-S-A-K-O-S, Leitsakos. And my father and his brother somehow ended up growing up, same household, different last names. My father's brother was Ephistaphimos Leitsakos, and he went through life as Stanley Lewis. And... Um, and so I think a lot had to do with tough names to pronounce. There probably was something going on when families went through Ellis Island and, um, you know, all part of the rich tapestry of our country and immigrant America, startup um, America. Um, if you remember, Paul Sangas, he ran a big campaign when he won his campaign for, for Senate back in the yes. day just trying to teach people how to say <laughs> Sangus and how to spell it. And, you know, we, we can't take it personally. I think that's, um, that's what, you know, the nation was all about. And we can't ever forget that Lowell, um, you know, the Lowell family, they were like the wasp bastions, if you will, of, of America. And they helped build, build the mills and really kicked off a big part of our industrial revolution and, you know, the mills needed people. One of my first jobs uh, when I was in high school was working in a mill. They were, I think it was called Joan Fabrics. And it was just literally hundreds and hundreds of people sewing. And my job was to run around and sweep under the sewing machines all of the excess cloth. And it was it was a tough job because literally as you started on one and then you would finish, the first one would have more stuff underneath. And then I also had to clean the bathrooms and cleaning the <laughs> bathrooms at Joan Mills was quite the experience. And, um, and uh, yeah, it was a um, – Lowell was, you know, really remarkable – place. Um, you know, my parents were from Lowell, and then I went to Brooklyn, if you can believe it. And then from Brooklyn, where I was born, uh, we would spend summers in Lowell, and then we moved back to Lowell, and I graduated from Lowell High School. So to step back a bit here, um, did you actually go to Lowell University, which is now UMass yeah. Lowell? Did you yeah. spend any time there? Yeah, I played varsity basketball there. And then I transferred to uh, Georgetown University um, and graduated from Georgetown. But, yeah, I played a Lowell State College for Coach 
George Gregoire. I actually was a pretty good basketball player. I played in Brooklyn growing up. Albert King and Bernard King, those were the playground legends where we were growing up. And, you know, when you played in Brooklyn outdoors, um, you know, it was a serious game there. And then when my parents decided that Brooklyn was too tough in the neighborhood, there were some issues in our neighborhood, especially with um, drugs for young people. And, you know, as I detailed in my book, The Business of Happiness, that, um, you know, when you got out of school, you either went to the playground and played outdoor football, touch football, or basketball, or softball, or you went to another part of the park and you drank and smoked pot and sadly (laughs) started to do more. And so at a young age, I saw the um, power of how sport could bring people together and put them on a higher calling and power of teamwork and the like. And when we moved, um, I played basketball in Lowell. It was kind of my um, touch point on how could you get integrated into a new community. And, you know, the common theme that we had was sports and competition. So I played um I played Goya basketball and with, you know, a lot of Greek kids in Lowell. And, and then um, my freshman year, I did go to Lowell State and played basketball and then transferred and graduated from Georgetown. Well, if you want to know, the small world gets even smaller here, Ted, because my grandfather was the captain of the Lowell Textile, which is now UMass Lowell, yeah. basketball team. That's fantastic. And, so you, know, you guys were, uh, I guess, alumni or, or basketball teammates, so to speak, uh, you know, a few years earlier. He was 1938. Charles Kalakis is my, my grandfather. Yeah. Wow. Um, and he played, uh, he played for the Lowell basketball team back in the day. Wait, wait, wait. So oh. I want you to know how the paths continue to be tight. So now I'm in Washington, D.C., and um, I'm chairman of the – largest scholarship and wraparound services charity here in Washington, D.C. called D.C. Cap. Yep. And just worked with the University of Lowell and Marty Meehan and Steve Pangiotakis. And we've created and and D.C. Cap and my family are funding and we've sent 20 D.C. high school students in mass to Lowell University, and they are now at Lowell University in STEM programs, science and technology programs, and uh, U. Lowell and D.C. Cap and my family foundation are paying for that because I feel so strongly about Lowell University and Marty Meehan is such a great president of the entire um, university school systems. It's a very innovative program, and it's our first year, and we've sent 20 freshmen there. And so Washington, D.C. has a direct line now to Lowell, Massachusetts. How about that? Well, like, you know, it's uh, for those who have family roots like uh, yourself and myself in, in Lowell, you're very passionate about it. And it's a very humble town and a blue collar town, mill town. 
Um, and I, I was just, I was researching for a, a, an earlier podcast guest, and it turns out that this longtime NBA coach, and this is the game here, Ted. We're finally okay. there. All right. The game is, can you name the NBA, longtime NBA coach, very famous guy, who got his first big break as the coach of the basketball team at what was then Lowell University. And I guess, I guess still to most people, it's University of Lowell or, or Lowell U, whatever. He got his first break in 1988, 50 years after my grandfather played for the, the Lowell basketball team. He was the head coach there. Do you know the longtime NBA coach who got his big break at Lowell? You know, I am stumped, but it wouldn't be surprising to me that it's going to be a brand name. Shoot, tell me. Stan Van Gundy. Oh, my gosh. That is, How about that? That is wild. I mean, I see Stan often in industry events. I'm going to have to, um, I'm going to, have to give him a high five on that one. He was the coach for four years, uh, Division Two at the time. I think it is now Division One basketball team now that it's part of the UMass group. But, um, yeah, Stan Van Gundy uh, spent a lot of time uh, in Lowell. So uh, next time you mention that to, to Stan, I'm sure he'd enjoy that. Yep. Well, um, it says a lot now. <laughs> now I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I understand a lot about where Stan is coming from. That's Maybe. right. Yeah, most right. people from from towns, you know, if you grew up in Brooklyn, if you grew up in Lowell, you spend time in those uh, communities, you tend to have a little chip on your shoulder. You tend to want to outwork others, and, um, and you're combative and competitive because, you know, people, I'm sure, had said to Stan, well, that's not a great experience you know that's not Kentucky basketball that's not um you know big time and and so I'm not surprised that that he would have gotten a start there and that's fantastic you have to learn to compete and recruit and and coach and get competitive advantage in any way possible yeah, so how about that? Lowell, Lowell, Massachusetts is the bedrock of not just the Industrial Revolution and the industrial uh, rise of the United States, but also to basketball in some small way. Yep. So you know, my you family grew up with Jack Kerouac, and he's a Lowell product? Oh, yeah, Jack Kerouac grew up uh, at the same time that the Greek immigrants were coming to Lowell, the French Canadians were coming to Lowell. They were the second wave. The first wave were the Irish Catholics, and, you know, they were escaping the potato famine. Um, and then because they could speak the language, um, they assimilated very quickly into the, you know, they became teachers and policemen and firemen. And, and, and then the second wave were the Greeks um, that were basically escaping the Turkish invasions and the Yugoslavia invasions and the French Canadians. And so they all lived in the tenements off of Broadway and the Acre. Don't you love that name, the Acre? And, you know, the Moulis family came um, and opened the butcher shop. I made a film, by the way, that is called the um, We the People, the Market Basket Effect that detailed all about Lowell, 
and what happened during the whole market basket and Damula's family issue, you can go to snag, S-N-A-G, films, snagfilms.com. Uh, it's a, a business that I, I started uh, with some friends and Comcast is an investor in it. And you can watch We the People, the Market Basket Effect. I encourage you to do so. And uh, tells the whole story about Lowell and the immigrants. And, yeah, Jack Kerouac uh, grew up, and his best friends were several of the Greek kids. Johnny Kumanzelis, who was my uncle. If you go up to Lowell High School, you'll see Kumanzelis Square right outside uh, Lowell High School. Uh, my uncle was a great athlete, as was Jack Kerouac. Jack Kerouac, um, I believe, even went to Columbia University on an athletic scholarship. Um, and he grew up with my uncle. My uncle tragically died uh, in the war. And he was such uh, a great athlete that, um, that they paid homage to him with Kumanzella Square right outside of Lowell High School's main entrance. My grandfather, I never knew him because he passed away tragically uh, when my father was two years old. And so I just have pictures of him. And he was, it seems cliche, a Greek god, but he was named one of the 50 best athletes by the Hellenic Society uh, in, in Lowell. And he was a giant. He was 6'3", 6'4". I'm six yep. feet tall, and I'm wondering, how did I not get to get yep. those jeans? Harry Aganis, the Harry Aganis tournament I used to play in all the time. He, too, was, uh, was a great athlete and, uh, you know, someone that was exemplar to the community. And I, I bet you they still have the tournaments. Uh, for oh, for sure. Usage. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so, so that's where this, that's, I, got, I got basketball in my jeans. Yeah, so this podcast is probably of interest to 100 people. <laughs> Maybe I know, we should I know. make it a little broader right now. Yeah, this but is, I'd, this I'd is... love to meet you. We should go have uh, dinner one night and just catch up on all of these things. I know. We're going to look at a family tree here, Ted, and figure yeah. out that we're, we're related here somehow. So, I mean, I guess all of us here are in the Greek family are related at some point. But, hey – Hey, this is a sports podcast. We touched on basketball a little bit, but you've you've been on quite a run here, Ted. You've had a busy summer, and I know you're not one to take a break and kick back and, and smell the roses or enjoy the moment uh, uh, for too long before you're off and going to the next thing. But look, 2018 Stanley Cup Finals for the Cavs. Uh, you win that championship for the Caps. In 2019, you win the championship for the Mystics. And so 2020, I'm predicting a Wizards they championship. They don't sleep on the Washington Valor who won the Arena Bowl in the, the Indoor Football League, the AFL. And, um, and basically, culturally, what we have articulated to everyone at our holding company called Monumental Sports and Entertainment is we have three specific goals. Um, the first one is to always make the playoffs and compete and win championships uh, in every league in which we compete. And so we've done that in arena football. We've done that in the WNBA. We've done that in the NHL. I also am a big player and partner in eSports, uh, Peter Guber is a very close friend of mine, and and we own um, Team Liquid, 
and Team Liquid is the most successful esports team, and we've won championships uh, in the Dota 2 uh, championship, and uh, we're very, very competitive, won the North American championships and League of Legends. And so, really, we now need to focus on the Wizards uh, in the <laughs> NBA and the Go-Go uh, in the G League. We just bought a G League team. And so our first goal is um, build great teams that can win championships, unite our community, make lifelong memories. Second is, very sincerely, to be the most socially responsible organization in sports and just activate charitable giving, um, really play a central role in, um, in uplifting the communities that we serve. And I'm very proud of all of the work that we're doing there. And then third is um, if we can win championships and we can unite our community and be um, great servants to the fans and the communities that we serve, we will build the most valuable, biggest, most important sports and entertainment franchise. And we are well on our way to that. We generate today monumental sports and entertainment. Um, All of our venues, all of our teams, all of our networks, uh, we generate more revenues than the largest NFL teams. And, you know, right now our franchises and organization probably, you know, we haven't been out and about pounding our chest, but, you know, we're probably worth three, three and a half billion dollars. And so the strategy is working if you are in pursuit of what I call double bottom line enterprises, if you do really good, you'll do really well. And, and, you know, that's what we have taught and evangelized to the 4,000 full and part-time people in our organization that let's try for excellence exemplified by championships. Let's never be resting on those laurels once we win the championship. I, I use the Capitals as, a, as an example. We went through a lot of hard times. For the last 12 years, we've been maybe one of the top two or three franchises in the 31-team league. We sell out every game. We have great ratings. We have superstar players. I think we have the second or third most playoff appearances. We've won the President's Trophy three times. We've won a Stanley Cup. Um, The window remains open. As I said, you know, only 10, 11 games in, but... We we just made a little bit of our own history, if you will. We've won five of six of our road games to start the season. We've never done that. We have a really, really world-class franchise, and our expectation is we'll make the playoffs and we can compete for another Stanley Cup, and that's how we want to approach things. The Mystics went to the finals Two years ago, the Mystics went to the finals. This year, we won our first championship. We have a great team. We want to compete and do it again. You know, we've struggled with the Wizards, and and a big part of it is is our health. Um, you know, it's so fragile. You know, John Wall, who's five-time All-Star, was our number one pick. 
also number one pick in the draft when I bought the team and we re-articulated a rebuild. He's missed half of the last two seasons. And How is John? I'm proud of John in that, you know, these are these are world-class athletes and they understand their careers are short, you know, and he made the all-star team five times. He is in his prime now. Two years ago, he had some knee issues. Last year, he had heel issues and then his Achilles. And um, But he is totally bought into what we're doing as an organization. He is working very diligently with our staff on his comeback. And, and John is very motivated to come back not only as a you know, leader of the team and, you know, one of the best point guards in the league. Um, But he is serving kind of a role now while he's not playing as another assistant coach. And we think that that'll serve us well because, John, we have a very, very young team right now, and we're going to play a different system. And we want when John comes back, in the new NBA, and when you look around the league, it was very positive because the league has moved from this notion of three max players and then a bunch of one-year contracts around them to really two great players, and now I'd say six or seven players in the rotation. And it reminds me really of what the NBA was like you know, in the 80s and 90s, where you needed two all-star players. Well, we think John Wall and Bradley Beal will be all-star caliber players, but we have to build around them, and mostly the way you build around them is through the draft. I think we had a very, very good draft uh, bringing Rui in. I think Rui is going to be a, a great young player, and you know who knows the next couple of years how we'll do in the draft, but we will be under the cap. And, you know, I will intend to make this a fast rebuild built around Bradley Beal and John Wall. Yeah, because, look, Ted, I don't need to tell you you're steeped in sports knowledge. The future looked bleak for the Wizards after John Wall got hurt. And it seemed like this is the most devastating injury you could have for a star player to have. And then the Wizards missed the playoffs and Bradley Beal uh, has this extension looming in front of him. And is he going to sign? What's he going to do? And uh, you make front office changes, but Bradley Beal goes out and signs an extension. And I can't imagine many people around the NBA expected a young player that talented to look at the Wizards situation and say, this is something I want to hitch my wagon to even further. And so how did that, how did that process go for you, Ted? Because I know you're very hands-on with uh, not just the Mystics or the, the Caps, but with the Wizards, too, you had a lengthy summer looking for the replacement for uh, Ernie Grunfeld, and then you had to deal with the Bradley Beal extension. So how did that process go? First, you had to find who was going to lead the, the team going forward, and also that vision, the culture or the next regime of the organization, would also have to figure out you know, Bradley Beal's situation and John Wall's situation. Yeah, you know, there's a little inside um, fun notion that most people now who really get it, I tell them, look to see what the bloggers and the Washington Post tell you to do, 
and do just the opposite. Oh. <laughs> that will be the formula for success. Um, you know, I'm I'm um, I'm marveling at the Nationals right now. Right? I mean, um, when they had one of the worst records in the league. Um, the Washington Post was telling everybody, um, sell the team, fire the coach, fire the GM, trade everybody. And, um, you know, now they're up 2 nothing, coming home for three games in the World Series. And um, I remember when we were rebuilding the Washington Capitals, I think Tom Boswell, the same guy who wrote the columns in the Washington Post about the Nationals, said, um, if I were a season ticket holder, I would take my tickets, light them on fire, go to Ted's house, and throw it on his front lawn. Um, and, I'm sure you and, enjoyed that one. Yep, I enjoyed that one. And, and the Mystics, um, we were ferocious in trying to get people to support women's basketball and support Ward 8 and and that we had made these big investments in Ward 8 and the infrastructure and the team and that players like Christy Tolliver and Elena Deladon and Natasha Cloud, these were world-class athletes worthy of your time and attention. And it was fight, fight, fight. And now we've won a championship. We opened the new building and won the championship. And and so Bradley Beal, who we picked in the draft early on, has experienced all of that. He he was a part of the the Stanley Cup run. He attended games with us. He went to the parade. He experienced our plan, our internal communications, and how it crescendoed. He was intimately involved, and we created this monumental basketball so that we could have the Wizards, the Mystics, the Go-Go of a G League team, and the NBA 2K all housed in the same building and arena, do cross synergies, if you will, with, with the team and the medical staffs and the like, and he saw and heard the plan and saw what we were going to do and saw our commitment and our level of investment. He went to all of the games. He was running out on the floor with the championship. And so when we talked to him about it is so meaningful to be a player who's connected to the community and who works and overcomes all of the naysayers, all of the negative negativity, all of the the random pixels out there, and winning a championship in the city, in the town, for the community that you've grown up with is the most um, spiritually uplifting experience imaginable. Look at Alex Ovechkin, Hall of Fame, first ballot player, spending his whole career here, MVP player. Look at Nicholas Backstrom, first ballot Hall of Fame player. They all signed and want to be here forever. Elena Deladon, probably you know one of the best players in the history of the game, now two-time MVP, 
just wants to be in Washington, D.C. Christy Tolliver won a championship in the NCAA, won one in L.A., wanted to come back, wants to be here. She's an assistant coach now for the Wizards. And so we want to build a community, a culture around bedrock players who share and believe and want to be a part of something much bigger than their individual selves. And Brad and John have both been the NBA Cares Players of the Year. They're both unbelievably community-minded, and they're a part of this. And so it wasn't a tough sell. It was Brad says, I get it. I believe. I love Washington, D.C. I love the fans. We've seen what's happened with the Caps. We've seen what's happened with the Mystics. We've seen what's happened with Team Liquid. We saw what you did in the Arena Football League. Let's do it for the Wizards. Let's do it together. Let's have many hands make life work. And and so I'm proud of Brad. I'm proud of John. You know, I'm proud of these unbelievably gifted players who not only, you know, they're going to get paid, they're, they're going to be a part of something, but they're making their own decisions and they're not being swayed, if you will, by pixels. They're to thine own self be true. And they get how meaningful it is to win a championship in the city that you love in front of the fan base that cares for you and you return that love. So the Bradley Beal thing is interesting to me because it seemed like from the outside that he had every reason to say, you know what, I just saw Anthony Davis go get a trade demand and go to the Lakers, and he's now competing for a title. James Harden in OKC leaves there and then starts competing for a title. You could see a path where Bradley Beal does the same thing where he says, you know what, I had a great time here, but this is not right for me. But he signs the one plus one extension to stay with the team. And I don't know that people look at this situation around the NBA and say, this is something that a superstar, I, in, in my opinion, Bradley Beal, from all the executives I talked to around the NBA, he was going to be number one, number two, and number three, most coveted trade guy on the trade deadline. If he was on the table, because they love him. They think he is a James Harden type, a guy who's, just figuring out how good he is and can be a 30-point scorer on a nightly basis and distribute. And now you guys have them, have him and John Wall. Of course, John Wall coming back from the injury is is we'll see how that goes. And and it's, but why it's a why long is process. everyone so positive? Kevin Durant has the same injury as John Wall and is older. And and again, I I think you know when I say no one knows nothing. And um, and so so Brad and John are way closer than the media portrays, and they are also um, deeply immersed in the culture of the NBA and the history of the NBA, and and having a great backcourt is um, priority one, right? And. And why would you want to, if you're a great player, be a sidekick, if you will? And is that leading to happiness? I mean, that's the, the amazing thing that you, um, you see. You've never seen as many unhappy people as you're seeing in the 
NBA, and all we have to do, again, is show the caps, right, and, and how, you know, Alex Ovechkin would have been the most coveted free agent of all time, right, in the, in the NHL, and everyone thought after his rookie deal and his first deal when he would be an unrestricted free agent, he'd go play in Montreal or Toronto or New York, and Alex signed a 13-year extension. That's ridiculous. That's, that's ridiculous, ridiculous, right? David, David Stern called me, I'll never forget this, and said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You will <laughs> regret he this say. decision <laughs> for the rest of your life. I said, thank you, Mr. Commissioner. I appreciate it. And then he hung up on me. And now people it. say, do you have any regrets on Alex Ovechkin's 13-year deal? And I say, yes, I wish it was 15 years. <laughs> and and so if you if you get a young player and they're a part of building your culture and and the team and the culture really becomes theirs, right? That's the key thing. And so if you're gifted and you're going to get paid in the NBA, why go play and be the third wheel, right? It's almost, it, it's counterintuitive to me, right? Because, you know, it's LeBron's team in L.A., okay? How'd it go last year? Did anyone look happy in L.A.? <laughs> and and so so Brad and John and the players here, they're a part of something, and it's going to be really, really hard. We, but if you're in it together, I mean, the Mystics seven years ago were the worst team in the league, and we brought Mike Tebow in, and he was the winningest coach in the WNBA, never won a championship, and we sat together and said, what do we have to do to build a world-class organization, great players, great team, great venue, win championships, be competitive, put women's sports on the map here in Washington, D.C., and the WNBA. And so we laid out that plan. You know, there were fits and starts. We'd make the playoffs. One year we didn't make the playoffs. We had good drafts. We had to make trades. And, you know, three years ago, you could kind of smell, hey, this is going to be good. We'd have some injuries along the way. And that's the thing that people way underestimate, the efficacy of team development. You know, they're random. We, we had a Wizards player get hurt first game, right? We've got like five Wizards players already not playing. And the, the NBA... You know, just look around the league. There's lots of great players who aren't playing, and those teams won't perform as well. You know, for the most part, until those. What do you attribute that to? Do you feel as as in your role, you look around the league? Do you think that the game is changing too fast, or do you think this is just miles on the tires? What do you think? you would attribute that to in your experience where it feels like a, a star. Maybe this is not empirically true, but yeah, I how do we get the, these guys I, healthy? I think the AAU system has a lot to do with, um, with the injuries, if you will. And when I say the AAU system, I just mean that, and it was one of the reasons, by the way, we chose Rui in the draft 
and why you're seeing a lot of the international players, the global players, shine and be more durable, if you will, in that... Um, they aren't playing 10 times a day in the uh, AU tournaments. And, and yeah, and, coming. And, and they're playing year-round, right? And your body needs time to heal. And, and we've made gigantic investments now at monumental basketball and sports science and health and, you know, truly hands-on individualized precision medicine for – you know, every player, we have a great partner in MedStar Health and their entire team. And, and these are big investments that you make in the players and the fans have expectations. And we're learning so much on you know, this whole notion of load management. And it's still, you know, hard to totally manage and perfect, right? Because if you're playing a player... Yeah, load management, it's you're traveling, you're practicing, you're playing in the games, you know, back-to-backs, the league has done a lot of work in, in trying to not have as many games back-to-back, and, and it's a very, very difficult sport. You have to look at sleep. I mean, I just read this book on sleep, and we're very focused on sleep and napping, but mostly for recovery your body needs the time hydration is you know a real science right now um and and you know how we're treating john wall in that um we've seen we we can go into the data and see when people have these kinds of injuries how long does it take for them to come back when do people come back and it's too early and they get re-injured? And you can show the player, um, this is how you have to rehabilitate. We have been every moment of every day with John Wall. He gets it. He appreciates that. And we've taken the pressure off by saying, we don't think you will play this year, and that is okay with us. And it should be okay with you. You're going to be around the team. You're going to be like an assistant coach. We don't want you to rush because you're signed long-term, and we want you to come back with confidence, feeling great. You, you have your contract. So you don't have to rush back because it's like a contract year and you want to show other GMs that you've still got it. You look at some of the players in the NBA, and that's what's happened. And, you know, it's really affected their career and the team makeup and the team chemistry. And and we wanted to remove all of that and the psychological mental health side of curing and taking care of athletes is equally as important. And so that whole side of the equation we're really, really focused on, and I think a lot of other teams now are you know, doing that, there's always going to be injuries. You know, Isaiah Thomas comes to our team, signs a one-year deal, and breaks his finger, right? Breaks a thumb, and, um, and that'll happen. Um, but, 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 you, we, but you're... 
but what you're talking about is how to prevent injuries and create a system or a culture where uh, you have the long view in mind. And that's hard to do in today's NBA, hard to do in today's microwave society where, you know, uh, I was on the show, the season preview show this week where Steve Kerr in a sit down with Logan Murdoch at NBC Sports Bay Area says it's unlikely uh, that Clay Thompson is going to be back this year. And the whole world was, you know, kind of shocked by that proclamation because it's, hey, you know, we were hearing February on him or we were hearing January even on some level. But I think as an owner, I, w- I want to ask this question, Ted, is – there, com- there, there, Wait, 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 wait. Okay, this is what I mean by the media, right? We were hearing, okay, you were hearing <laughs> right? Who could you possibly be hearing that from? And, you know, I, I, I love telling this story where um, when we were interviewing for folks, you know, to replace Ernie, I I really was extroverted, and I talked to like 80 people and, you know, started doing interviews, and the interviewing process was very um, diligent, and we had one person come and visit us, and um, and I have an assistant who, you know, was in all of the meetings. We had some consultants and the like, and it was eye-opening for for my assistant, Bob Schneider, because he loves sports and he grew up in the political world and now he's deep in the sports. And um, so I'm hosting somebody for the first time at my home in Maryland. And, And we're making some small talk and Bob goes to Sweetgreen to bring us some salads. Yep. And and so we are making chit chat, we have our salads, and then we go to start talking, speaking. And and there's a bathroom break and Bob comes into my off into my home office shaking his head and I go, What's up? And he goes, Well, look at these tweets and it's Ted is interviewing this candidate, and he's getting a tour right now of the practice facility in Ward 8. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and he goes, well, we're at the house. And then it says he's offered a four-year deal, but the candidate wants five. And I say, the only thing I've offered is, would you like the kale salad or the salmon salad? I don't get it, right? And so, so like on, on Steve Kerr, you know, medical information and rehab and HIPAA laws, and it's, it's right. so important, right? And, and the media tries to put pressure, and all I've ever done now of late is to say, this is about you your career, your role on the team, your responsibility to the community, and we are going to do the right things in the right way. All of the pixels, you know, the pixels won't hurt. And and so so when when you say, well, we were hearing February, how could well, that be, right? <laughs> it was just someone writing it. And so well, when they go, I'm shocked. Let me say, <laughs> Andre would the reason why February was out there uh, yeah. is because his teammate at the time, 
uh, Andre Iguodala went on ESPN, and I guess this is one of your pixels, uh, yeah. but he went on ESPN on first take and said, uh, we're expecting him to be back. And this, again, this is over the summer before yep. Iguodala, and they, they, they made changes over there. He said, we're expecting him to be back in February. Where he got that date, right. where, where the right. – Science comes in there. I don't know. But then people are looking at February, and he's saying he's a fast healer, and then the expectation is set for February. And so as the media, I'm just going to stick up in the media here and say, you know, without that quote from his teammate, and he's not a doctor and neither are most of the media members, but that's how this conversation gets generated. And I do think that – I think there's just a little bit more perception that this is more precise than it actually is. People think that – as soon as an Achilles injury happens, the team and the player are already saying, all right, he's going to be back at this yeah. point. No. Every, uh, every single day this summer, every single day, no exaggeration, we had somebody with John working out with him, spending time with him, and sending us, Tommy Shepard, Tommy would then send to me every day the analytics, how he's doing, a video, how much he weighs, you know, what his strength is every single day. And and so so it always would amaze me when you go, well, the player's doing the work. You can't believe how much work is involved in rehabilitation in the right way, especially from this injury, and how you can measure the gait, the strength, the balance, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's, and, and, and so we have the data, and the player obviously has the data. The player, by the way, is motivated by, I want to see the data. I want to see incremental improvement. Yeah. But, there are times when you take a step back or you're in pain and you, you know, you, it, it's a long, long process. I admire the fortitude of the players that come back, but I also admire the organizations that are about truth, right? And, and it's, um, it's, we're in it for the long haul. We don't want a sugar buzz, you know, return. Yeah, maybe we'd sell some more tickets, but that's like a short-term thing. And I, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in us having a team that long-term becomes a destination. And it's, well, if Bradley Beal is there and John Wall is there and they've drafted well and they have these great facilities and these great doctors and the, the city is fantastic and look at the investment they made in the buildings and, and that, you know, that's how you'll overcome and become a, a great, great franchise. And, and my confidence is, well, we've done it elsewhere. Now we can do it here. And, you know, building monumental basketball, we're one of the few organizations that has an NBA, WNBA, G League, NBA 2K, obviously the Summer League, all housed in the same place. We've made incredible investments. You know, John Thompson joining us, and 
working with Sashia to be focused on, you know, off the court and, and family matters and the like. And as I said, mental health becomes very, very important. The, the world that these young people, men and women, now are living in with social media is remarkable. And, and you know, we've never really dealt with it before. And we're literally having to tell players, you know, put the phones down. Don't weigh in during your free time onto social media. There's nothing that good that's coming there, right? It's, it's, it's negative. And that is contributing to your your angst, if you will, and it should be, you know, go out and get experiences when you're on the road, you know, go with your teammates to museums, right? I mean, let's program speakers, let's, let's, let's find something, you know, I just, I just put on my blog today, um, you know, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, they read 200 books a year. I can't, but I'm reading 50 books a year, and it, quenches your curiosity, it gives you inspiration, it helps you to be more creative, and and how did I budget and allocate the time to do that? And I don't watch television other than sports, and I'm way cutting back on social media, because when you think about it, you're reading pixels from morons. <laughs> wait, wait, wait! I'm one of those morons, I don't mean the media. I just mean people that are weighing in, right? Who are uninformed, and as opposed to a book, as opposed to a long-form magazine piece, as as opposed to really, really um, things that will enrich your worldview. And so, so we are trying to teach the players that becoming a great human will fuel you being a great, great player, and it'll also prepare you for life after basketball, right? That, that you know, we want to be seen as an organization that can develop your, your game, develop your career, can develop your, your worldview, can make you healthy, can, you know, you want to be a part of something for a long, long time. And, and, you know, that's what we will preach. And yes, there are people who are mercenaries and they'll jump from team to team and, you know, chase dollars and the like. And, and, but ultimately I think that your happiness will come from being like this active participant in this community. And if you can win a championship with, the team that you've been associated with and for the fans that you've been associated with, there's nothing more self-actualizing. There's nothing more satisfying than that. And, you know, we had that with Alex Ovechkin. I mean, it's why the city went crazy. And, and I'll also say it's given our community permission to win. I, I, I'm, I'm so proud of how close the Capitals, the Mystics, the Nationals are. Players, ownership, the organization, they're feeding off of one another. And it's, well, if the Caps could do this and the Mystics can do this, we can do this. 
And, you know, you go into the Caps locker room and they've got Nationals logos in their locker room right now, right? Alex is throwing out the first pitch, is very close friends with, with Zimmerman, right? They came into the leagues pretty much at the same time. And, and, and there's something very, very powerful about being a part of a community, um, building and contributing to what the culture is. And frankly, if if that's not what you're about, you will be happier somewhere else, right? There there are players, people in an organization that that don't buy that. They think it's baloney, right? And and we go fantastic. That's not, this isn't the right place for you. And so, you how, know, how do not, you how do you Ted go from a phone call with Barack Obama to landing with Tommy Shepard? Um, well, it wasn't so much landing with Tommy Shepard. It was, um, you know, I, I, I had two conversations with President Obama, who, you know, was very, very insightful, as was Greg Popovich, right? As was, you know, lots of people that I spoke to, the president of Georgetown University, Jack DeJoy. I mean, I spoke to as many people as I could, first about leadership and building a great organization that incrementally improves all of the time. And, you know, what basically came was it's not about a person. It's about the team and this notion of um, the unicorn great decision maker is a false one. You need to knock down walls and make people allow them to breathe, right? And so so what it gave me the confidence to do was to say, yeah, I'm going to promote Tommy. Tommy, I was most impressed with his extrovert nature and all of the people that he knew and all the people that were calling me, but also his love and respect for global international basketball. And he was loyal to his boss. He never once said to me, which you'll see in business, well, I didn't want to do that, right? He didn't throw his boss under the bus. He just focused on, here's what I would do on the go forward. But we went out and we brought in Sashi Brown. Sashi is a world-class thinker, very talented guy, you know, was a lawyer, went to Harvard Law School, worked in the NFL. He was bringing a different perspective to this. We brought Danny Medina in, who, you know, grew up in Barcelona and, you know, worked for a couple of years in Philadelphia. And he had a very, very interesting view of the NBA and what works and what doesn't and why health why it isn't working in the NBA, what we have to do to turn that around. And, and we brought John Thompson in, right? John, Georgetown University was a, was a great coach, but is more a teacher and was more focused, as Georgetown always was, about, about yes, they have to be world-class athletes, but they have to go to class, right? I mean, that's the whole Georgetown ethos, and that you have to worry about the people around them and the culture that you're creating so that they, they're they a part of something and that they're developing, you know, everything in them. And we built this new training facility with our city and events, D.C., and 
And so, so it's a big move, but it's not unlike what we did with the Capitals, right? That um, there was a lockout in the NHL, and we used that year, and we changed our minor league affiliation from um, from uh, Portland, Maine, to Hershey, Pennsylvania. And we said, what we're going to do in Hershey is run the same system, same play, cook the same food, do as much as we can. We'll, we'll recruit the coaches, we'll recruit the players, we'll treat Hershey like it's a world-class uh, organization and facility, and we'll partner with them. And a lot of our players developed in Hershey. They won. I have three rings three championships from Hershey and a lot of those players that won rings in Hershey then came up to the NBA and then we built and opened for when we came out of the lockout our new training facility which is still in Boston Virginia still considered you know the class or one of the best training facilities and we rebuilt the team so it was a big strategic change and pivot new minor league affiliation, new training facility, lots of new players. And, you know, it took a while. We were awful. It's how you get Alex Ovechkin and Nick Backstrom. Um, you know, you, you draft high, but it turned, and people now have totally forgotten that process and how ugly it was because we've had basically 12 years of of excellence. As I said, uh, it took seven years for the Mystics. I mean, look at the Nationals. Look at how how they they moved. They played at RFK Stadium, you know, the city. And the Nationals built an open Nats Park. They had a great team, lots of great players. They were always coming up short. You know, the, the pixels that were slung their way, very analogous to what was going on with the Capitals, and, and here they are. You know, they, they're up to nothing. They swept the Cardinals. They, I mean, this, this is like a historic run into the World Series, and everyone missed it. The Nationals' ownership didn't miss it. I mean, we, we, we believed, right? I'm very close with the Lerner family, and, and they own a small piece of, of monumental sports, and we get it. We know what they were doing. They were criticized like crazy for letting Bryce Harper go, right? And it was, well, would you like one really, really high-paid high player or three really, really good players? And we believe in our future. I mean, Soto could be one of the greatest players ever, right? He's like a and baby. He's, he's a delight in the year, batter's he's box. Yes. Unbelievable, right? Yeah. And... And so, so I think if you, if you have a strong point of view, you've done the work, you've done the research, and, you know, that's what I believe where I take confidence. I really did the work in building the new organization. It's going to take a while. We're going to get criticized. People are going to be snarky and funny. But we believe the notion that um, you would bring in three people – and they would do a two-hour interview with you and then come back and do another two-hour interview. And then you go, here are the keys. <laughs> go drive the car. I think that's old NBA. And these are big, 
complicated, complex, very valuable organizations. And, you know, I do have another life running businesses, being, you know, on boards of public companies. And you would never do in a public company what the media and what some people were saying you should do in pro sports, right? These businesses now are worth several billion dollars. You need to do succession planning. You need to do career development. You need to do a lot of due diligence in building your organization. And kind of the old days of, you know, here's the one coach, here's the one general manager, that's it. You know, there's some unicorns out there like in San Antonio, unbelievable team out there with the GM and the coach, but but these are very, very big, complex businesses, and I think it, it is many hands make life work. And time well, will tell, right, if we're right or wrong, but I'm patient, and, and I know I can look in the mirror and say I did the work, and, and you know, this this the pixels that were being slung at us at us, which was um, hire someone already. You know what's taking so long? Um, it's a broken process. It was like you don't know what you're talking about. But what else is new? I will say a couple months ago uh, on that front of predicting the future, and no one knows anything, but they think they know everything. Uh, when I was when I was sitting at home over the summer, uh, it was a couple months ago, I think. Um, I have a lot of friends like in Wall Street or in the business side and in finance, and they text me. They're like, "What is this sports book in in the arena at an NBA team?" There's a, there's a guy talking about it on the on CNBC right now, and that was like breaking news. I didn't even know that you were in talks to bring a sports book into Capital One. What is what is that for the fan? Just for those listening at home, what does that mean for the fans, and what yeah. does it mean for the organization? Well, well, right now, if you're a student of sports, there are three innovations that are driving everything on a global basis. Um, the first is streaming media direct to consumer, DTC, over the top, OTT, so you'll hear DTC and OTT, uh, which essentially means can you build a relationship through your video assets going direct to the consumer. Right. And and we were the first to build a regional sports network, monumental sports network, and we streamed 500 games a year. Comcast and NBC are minority partners in MSN, and it is a bellwether for what the future could look like. We also, you know, have a great deal with NBC to show our games um, on regional sports network, and we are a minority equity partner there. So we've built the most innovative, most robust media partnership with a with a partner in all of sports, right? It's both regional sports network as well as OTT. Then the second is um, the gamification of sports based on big data. Sports publishes the most data 
of any business, way more than business does, right? That has quarterly reports and annual meetings. I say to everybody, I've got hundreds of annual meetings, right, with all of our shareholders. They come to our games. We publish real-time data and information. And so you're starting to see, obviously, through like the DraftKings and FanDuel's of the world, and my private equity company is a big investor in DraftKings, and we see the power of people getting engaged with the sport, with the data, their level of engagement on the media and with the teams skyrockets. And so, so gamification, big data, gaming, and gambling. And a couple of years ago, it was passed by the Supreme Court. There was a rule called PASPA, but that really was about states' rights. And states said, we need more revenues. We need a broader tax base. We want to create jobs for people in our community. And we know through research that there's billions and billions and billions of dollars that are being gambled illegally in the shadows or offshore. And why wouldn't we want to create a regulated official environment where people can place sports bets and generate jobs and generate revenues for the leagues and people will pay taxes on their their winnings and will take what's in the shadows and bring it into the light, which is goodness. That's not badness, right? It's not like people aren't betting today. And so 18 states now are allowing sports gaming. New Jersey, who was first, they're generating more sports gaming action than Las Vegas is now. Just think about that, that's, right? I mean, that's, that's how crazy. fast it happened. And so Washington, so can, can fans go to a uh, Wizards game now and, no, not and experience yet. that? When does not that happen? Yet. Not yet. And so what we did was because Washington, D.C., will legalize sports betting, and they created this tiered approach. They have um, a A level of license. So Nats Park and Capital One Arena, and I think DC United, and there's another place or two where you'll be able to place bets. But we as the team will never be in that business or the league, but we own these big venues. We own Capital One Arena. It's not owned by the, the city. And so we essentially said what we would like to do is work with a partner. In this case, it's William Hill. And we'll take a big piece of our arena and we'll work with William Hill and we will build a world-class sports book. And people will be able to come in during the day into our arenas. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable that we've spent so much money on our buildings and we don't have anyone in the building during the day, <laughs> right? In fact, we lock people out. And, and so now we'll have this world-class facility that you can come in off of the street and eat and dine at the, you know, the William Hill Sportsbook, and you can watch games from around the world and place bets just like they do in Europe today and they've been doing for decades. 
and then and then you know it'll be posting odds and during a game you can get there early or during the game you can be in there and you can be watching all of the NBA games and all of the NHL games and you're placing bets and one day you'll be able to do what's called prop betting right where you're you're not just betting like the Wizards lost last night and but they covered the spread <laughs> Right, and I don't bet, I don't gamble. Someone sent me an email with that that said, "Hey, you, on your first game, if you had had sports gaming, you might have lost the game, but you covered the spread." And I go, "Well, we don't ever want to be motivated by that. We don't <laughs> want our coaches to know, you know, that's not their focus. But that someone knew that they're not placing the bet means that's happening today, right? And so." So this Pollyanna-ish, how could you do that? How could you be supportive of that? Come on, right? If, if it wasn't happening today, some people estimate like $100 billion. And so we want to do it in a very high-integrity way. William Hill is a, a great partner to work with us. And, you know, once the city finalizes all of its rules, you know, I'm disappointed that – you know, we'll be building, or I shouldn't say we'll be building, William Hill and their architects will be building it out with a landlord, if you will. But I don't think we're going to be able to take bets live until next season because, you know, the, the regulators, and we want to be above reproach and do everything by the book, which you have to do. But as I've told people, good while you're getting it right, that means there's another season of illegal betting that's going on where the city's not getting any revenues, there's no taxes being paid, and so I'm not sure who the real victor is there other than the underground economy. Well, if I had gone back in time, Ted, and said, this kid who's cleaning up shavings off of the floors in, Lowell, in a Lowell mill making a bet that you would be owning these teams and being part well, of Well, eSports, and eSports is the, so, it, so it's OTT and DTC streaming and gamification and gambling and then eSports. And as I said, we're, we're the absolute leader in eSports through Team Liquid and this holding company we created called Axiomatic. We invested in Epic Games. Epic Games owns and launched Fortnite you know, if you're play Fortnite, I think Tommy is running the the esports team, or yep. at least he has a hand in that too. Which is, he a new, is. That's you know, a new job the, for him. When we first told him we were going to do that, yeah, and he's been. They've been. He and my son are very involved, and they've been wheeling and dealing and making some trades. And we won the first round pick, and yeah, we, and the reason that we're doing so well in esports is we are treating the athletes like they're professional athletes. Team Liquid has won like $25 million in prize money. We house them in this great training facility. We get a sponsor for the training facility. More people are watching games and tournaments on Twitch than are watching an NBA game, right? If you went to the Tech Council, I mean, the the Tech Day at the NBA, right? Adam brought out a young woman on YouTube who's got 14 million subscribers. And he reminded everyone that a typical NBA game, we get a couple of million people watching. 
I remember it said you were big on the gambling and sports book in 2016. I went to this tech summit and you were, yep. you were big on that back then. So the innovation for sure, these are things that you think about years in advance is how do we implement them? And so you did it with the mystics, you did it with the, the caps and you, you, you did it with your arena uh, team. So now I guess the, the Wizards fans can see the blueprint on the other sports, and they're looking forward to the future there in the Wizards. Yeah, Which, and I, by and the way, I said by the way, I've let the, the Wizards game, fans down, and and you know we have to redouble our efforts to make the team great. It could take a long time, but the only thing we can promise the fans is that we will do the work and that we're in it together, you know, that Brad signed the deal was um, showed our commitment, right, that John Wall signed the max deal. Unfortunately, he got, he got injured. Those are really positive signs, right, that, that great players want to commit long-term to the organization and to the fan base. And I'm just hopeful that our fans, while there's going to be – pain along the way that they'll think of the long term and look at our other teams and and how we've won championships and take some solace in. We know what we're doing and hopefully we can deliver sooner rather than later and remake the Wizards into being a world-class great team and great organization. I'm not so sure a lot of NBA fans thought that the Raptors would, would raise the Larry O'Brien trophy this past June, but a lot of cra- crazy stuff happens in the league, yep. and it's only being more unpredictable as we go along. So, Ted, thank you so much for joining the Haber Show, and uh, I'll see you around the, the arena at some point this year and around the NBA, and uh, we'll catch up then. Great. Yeah, and I look forward to getting together and – comparing notes on Lowell in Big Greek. <laughs> it's Peter King, host of the aptly named Peter King Podcast, dropping every Wednesday. I chat with big football people. Now I've added a second mini pod dropping Monday mornings, capsulizing my football morning in America column. Listen. All right. Thank you for listening to The Haber Show. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you do those things, screen grab it and tweet at me, at Tom Haberstroh, and I'll give you a shout. Until next time.